0: Welcome to the Success Looks Like You podcast, Sly Speaks Careers, bringing you the best of the UK, black talent, and we're spilling the tea on all things careers. I'm your host, Mwila, founder of Success Looks Like You. Welcome to episode seven of the Sly Speaks Careers
1: podcast. Who do we have on the show today? Hi, I'm Angela Gambayalowo. I'm a financial services professional and well-being advocate and founder of Selffully, which is really a platform that helps provide solutions for individuals to sustain a self-care mindset. Great. Thanks, Angela. Hi, I'm Dr. Yvette Ankra, MBE, and I'm a
2: transformational coach and speaker. So I work with high-achieving women, usually those who have multiple businesses, and also those who are in the nine-to-five and wish to transition out. So I'm passionate about self-care and well-being, and I speak a lot about this on various stages. My background is one of experiencing burnout, so I am really keen for women not to experience some of the things that I went through on my journey.
3: Perfect. Thanks, Yvette. Hi, I'm Renee, Renee Davies. I am a journalist, I work in communications, and I also am the founder of Out the Box, which is an organisation and platform for young creative social entrepreneurs and young BMA professionals. Um, So we run workshops, online content and events. I also run an event series called Phenomenal Woman, which is set up to celebrate and champion black women from different backgrounds, different ages. And we encourage um, well-being, self-care, mental health, Um, and just being your best
0: self. Amazing. Thanks, ladies. Um, So we are entitling today's episode, self-care, rest and boundaries. How important are they? And that's really because all three uh, of our guests today, Yvette, Andrew and Renee, are massive advocates for for self-care, for maintaining boundaries as an entrepreneur and for avoiding burnout. So to get into today's episode, I wanted us to jump straight into younger self-advice. So Ladies, if you were sixteen or eighteen, just about to go into the the world of work or the world generally, what would you have told yourself? Kicking off uh, with Renee, I would say,
3: don't even panic because everything that you need to embark on this journey is already set up for you. The people that you need to know, the mentors that you need, the resources and the networks that they're all going to come. Um, So don't sweat it, honestly not worth the stress Mm -hmm. because you'll eventually land where you need to
0: be great Angela what would be your younger self-advice
1: interestingly quite similar to Renee um mine would be to believe that everything is a process and to trust that process sometimes like I think I was very impatient as a young person and knowing what I know now I will just really calm down and take one day at a time that's good Yvette
2: yeah, similarly, just enjoy the journey rather than trying to make everything happen. And there was not a lot of trusting in things just unfolding. It was, you know, if I couldn't control it, what was the point? So far more a relaxed attitudes and kind of just, you know, follow gut instincts as well. Mm. A lot more. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's good. Good advice. So um, thinking again about uh, your younger self, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your journey to the present day. So, you know, 16 or 18 and uh, coming, uh, you know, out of secondary or sixth form or college education, what has been your journey to the present day? And I'm interested in hearing kind of the education, the, you know, the relationships, how you've on the career and uh, businesses that you are running at the moment. So if we could start with Angela.
1: Yes, so um, I actually grew up in Nigeria Mm -hmm. and I moved to the UK when I was 17. So at that age, really, you think you know who you are, but really and truly you're clueless. And um, I moved here and started my A-levels. And it was a very different process to what I knew, like the way the exams worked, the way um, the school structure, even how you address the teachers. So it was a huge mind shift. It was a huge, you know, culture shock. But overcoming that, making new friends and then going to university, I didn't even know what I wanted to study. I knew I wanted to, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a lawyer. But mm-hmm. then in when I started A-levels, no one really told me how the subjects you pick actually inform which universities you go to and what, stu- uh, what course you can study so a lot of it was a lot of finding things out for myself. I'm the eldest, so I didn't have like older siblings, um, or any close family friends to really guide the way. So I went to the University of Portsmouth. I studied sociology and psychology, and um, graduated in 2009, which was at the peak of the financial crisis. I remember an interview I went to where the manager said to me, "I'll hire you right now, but you know you're too good because you've got a degree. You don't need a degree for this job, and if I did hire you." You won't last very long because you'll be looking for something better. Mm. And I just wanted to scream at him to say, I just want a job. I don't really care what it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've learned that rejection is really redirection. Eventually, I found a job with a company that did employment screening for financial services candidates. And that was kind of where, like, my interest in financial services started. Notice how I didn't even talk about the law anymore. Like, that was completely Mm -hmm. out of my head. Um, So we were screening people who were working at financial institutions. I was seeing the money these people were making and I'm like, okay, well, I want to make that much money. What do I need to do? So after a couple of years and saving up, I did an internship in the Mm -hmm. U.S. with an institution called Montbatten. They kind of arrange work experiences for British students or UK-based students to start to work in the U.S. and vice versa. So that was my first job in um, financial services. I did two rotations doing data analysis, which I had nuclear about, and then I had to do a bit of equity product control. Mm -hmm. And um, when I came back to the UK, I stayed in financial services, initially within wealth management for uh, two different financial institutions. And then I hit another rough patch where I was out of work for a year, Mm -hmm. so I was initially contracting and my last contract didn't get renewed and it took me a whole year to find another job I was getting interviews but no job offers um I think in total there were about 35 interviews that I attended Mm. and um that was really shaking like it it really shook me my self-confidence went down because when you think you've arrived and you start from square one But anyway, at the end of that, I was able to get a job in the field that I'm currently in, which is in loan syndication. And um, that is what I'm currently doing now. And I'm enjoying it.
0: Amazing. So just want to drill down into a couple of the things that you said um, in in your journey. So you talked about university and picking subjects. I wanted to hear from Renee and, and Yvette if you felt that you had much guidance around picking university subjects, picking A levels. Did you understand like facilitating subjects? Like, what, what was your experience there?
2: So, for me, I grew up here and I'd already made up my mind of what I was going to do. And so, my A levels were geared towards doing that. And it was interesting because I actually studied journalism. So, my first degree is journalism and psychology. And um, but I began writing when I was 16. And I remember going to my interview at the university. And because um, I studied at City, and I remember being told, well, English is, you know, everybody does that. Media studies is pointless. At least you did politics. That was relatively useful. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that was that was my interview at university. So mm. but my family, whilst they came here to study, they were their first generation. My sister had gone to university and studied economics and I wasn't going to be a doctor, lawyer or accountant. That was just not where my energy was. So it was really tough because I had no networks. So I kind of had to find everything myself and work experience to um, the universities. I had to do that sort of solo, really. Mm. And I actually didn't want to go to university. I was planning to be a journalist. At, this is at 16, but I was going to be a journalist, and I didn't need university, and I was going to rule the world.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> that was my thinking. And my mother looked at me and said, you will go to university. <laughs> and we get on to mentors later on, but I had some very good mentors in my life, and they said, you know what, get that degree, you'll, you'll thank yourself later.
0: Yeah. And, and did, did that ring true for you? Was the, the degree um, a meaningful venture? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have to say that I, was,
2: I loved writing and I was writing for publications and interviewing people. So I've interviewed a lot of poets, writers, musicians, and stuff. I was doing it when I was like 16, 17, and 18. And doing that degree put me off journalism for such a long time. It really did. So I then had to think, well, what is it I'd like to do? So I did stuff around it. So I've worked in press offices. I've worked in um, a PR agency. I became a PR consultant. Um, I've done lots of events work. So I did other things apart from journalism. Now, over 20 years later, I'm back to writing again.
0: Yeah, interesting that you've come full circle. Renee, what was your experience around sort of picking subjects, um, university, understanding kind of, yeah, what to do and and the support that you had to get there? So I'd grown up writing, writing poetry,
3: short stories. I always knew that I wanted to write in some capacity. Um, And then when obviously I understood what journalism was, I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. But I knew that I wanted to kind of, broaden myself out and still work within media as well I didn't do A-levels I was very strategic in my higher education because I didn't want to stay at my school and do A-levels at all and I knew that going into college and doing A-levels just wasn't the route for me because I'd, I'd always struggled with like exams and things like that I'm a very practical hands-on person mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just wired that, that in that way so what I did was I chose a BTEC the equivalent of Three A levels. So for me, um, I didn't do the best in my GCSEs. So I was like, okay, if I can get enough GCSEs to get onto this BTEC, then I can get enough on my BTEC, get my free A levels, and get into university because that's what my course requires. So I did um, a BTEC in media, and that was all like mostly practical work. We didn't really have exams at all. I think we had a few like written assignments and stuff, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed it because the course was very hands-on. But when I applied for university, I actually got an unconditional offer. I didn't even really care to see my grades they just wanted to know that I was kind of applying myself in college so I did media and journalism at university so I added on the journalism because I was like right okay I really want to do this writing thing and like Yvette said the course the journalism course was whack <laughs> like it was depressing yeah <laughs> it was so depressing so so depressing and I think because like my specialism and the things that excited me were like music journalism like Black culture, anything to do with with that and within that, I was always writing about for assignments. But because the lecturers didn't understand that so much, it was just hard for them to gauge and engage with my work. And I had so many do-overs. Like, oh, it was just a lot. University was really hard for me, but I made it through. Yes, well done. Thank you. It kept me hungry. It kept me hungry and determined to, to get through it. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it was my degree that got me to where I, wo- where I wanted to be in journalism, it was networks and networking and speaking to the right people. But I do think sticking it out kind of just kept that determination yeah, um, and kept it at the forefront of my mind because I think the odds at uni were definitely against me. And I even remember someone from the BBC coming in and saying, you know, if you know you're not going to be earn- earning one of the top salaries in journalism, don't bother. Mm, How no. can someone from the BBC <laughs> come and tell us that? <laughs> so I just thought, do you know what? <laughs> I thought... I'm not going to listen to these people. I'm going to do this. I really want to do this. So I, I, in the end, when I graduated, I think about six months later, I landed my first role at 21 for a charity magazine. And I, I ended up being there for full time as a journalist for like seven years.
0: Yeah. Tell us a bit more, Renee, about the the journey. So after the charity, so you stayed there for, for seven years. Obviously, after being somewhere for, for a long time, it must be quite difficult to, to make the, the jump. What made you leave and what did you go on to do? So alongside the role, yeah. I started the platform out the box. But the platform actually
3: started, funnily enough, when I was at uni, because at university, because my lecturers weren't understanding my articles, and my pieces I decided to fling it all onto a blog and the blog I called it out the box because I felt boxed in yeah and then I carried on using that platform as a way of interviewing others and I interviewed like young black pioneers people that were doing their own thing creating their own projects launching businesses and then from there the, the brand kind of just grew into events into workshops as I was doing that I was still working mm-hmm. but I think it wasn't that my love for journalism went but I think I kind of got tired of where I was naturally it was seven years and I was I'm, I was still in my 20s so it's like I knew I wanted a new start and that it was time for me to branch out and really dig my heels into out the box and try other things as well so the leap was scary and difficult and the year after that was probably one of the hardest years I'd had but it was necessary to really kind of question my why so yeah
0: amazing and then uh jumping back to Yvette will you tell us a bit more about your journey so City University did a journalism degree tell us um what you did after that and how you've got to the present day as a transformational coach
2: after, well, just in between sort of, you know, getting my results from uni, I was an intern actually, um, and I was investigating underrepresentation of black journalists in the UK. So, um, similar to Renee, I, you know, I had, I was, had this sort of background of working for black arts magazines, um, being an, a kind of almost a, an activist, <laughs> um, looking at black culture and even my A levels was, um, uh, looking at underrepresentation of black artists in the British music charts—that was what I did for my level media. <laughs> so there was a lot of that background, mm-hmm. um, and I became—I did this internship um, at the Freedom Forum, which is a centre for journalists. And um, you know, I did this conference and wrote this um, wrote the report for it. So I already started doing events then. That job, more than anything else, helped me get my first job in a press office. So I just, as I said, I gave up on the whole idea of journalism as I was being told to go and work in a provincial paper earning hardly any money and as I explained to to the people the powers that be that you're asking me to go to an area that was very diverse but yet there was nobody of any color on any of those publications Hmm. so I was very, I was kind of thinking not sure how this is gonna work and I loved being in London I didn't really feel like leaving London worked in a press office and the job that I got was not the job that I was told what I was going to have. I don't know if anyone's had that experience where you're told There's, all these things are going to happen. And I remember sitting there thinking every day is going to be exactly the same unless I do something about it. And I could almost plot in six months we would be doing this activity. <laughs> and my mum had told me somewhere that, you know, you should stay in your first job for at least 18 months and 18 months the day I left. And I'd actually pitched myself to a startup yeah. PR company. I was the only woman there. I'll tell you how long ago this was. When I worked at the press office, people could smoke in offices. Oh, Lord. We so had a dial-up <laughs> internet connection, which we had to all use and plug in when your colleague was not using it, right? No. So <laughs> that, that's the difference, you know? We didn't use social media it didn't exist. So this is as if was, you know, 20-odd years ago. I did that, and th- that place we went from, I was the fourth member of staff to join, and I watched that thing grow, and um, it, the company did get bought out, and I watched it grow and expand and then I realized that I was very unhappy and that was the first time I had burnout. But I was exhausted. I was working 12 hour days every day. I had no life unless it was work or drinking with my colleagues. There wasn't anything else in between. In my 20s, working in the PR agency, this is like, you know, the epitome of the life. It really wasn't. So I was volunteering for charities at the same time. And I realized that actually I'd rather work in the voluntary sector. So um I quit dramatically and was lying in my grandmother's house in Ghana thinking, what am I going to do? <laughs> and decided, right, you're going to be trained. So I did an arts management course. I went back as a freelance consultant for a few months and then moved into fundraising and corporate fundraising in, in the voluntary sector. So a complete switch <laughs> of careers. Then I moved to another voluntary organisation working with black organizations this time in london and loved doing that and then i wanted to do my master's and they weren't willing to support a part-time master's so i got another job and became sort of the deputy of a charity so i could do my part-time master's (laughs) so i did i did that so every time i made sure i earned more money and got the position i wanted and changed my job title if it didn't suit me so (laughs) i did i did stuff like that was quite strategic with the career and my master's is in um, communities organizations and social change and I got into race, class and identity. And um, that's what I did my thesis on. And that's why I ended up getting a PhD in as well.
0: Wow. Amazing. And then how did you get to transformational coaching? Like you've clearly sort of had a really um, varied uh, career journey. What led you to the point where you wanted to sort of do your own thing and support other women to avoid some of the pitfalls that you'd experienced?
2: Well, doing my own thing started with the first job in the press office because I realized that my job there was just nine to five and I got bored. So I'd be consulting and writing for people after hours. So I've always had a side gig and a day job. So it's kind of, it was weird not to have multiple things and the coaching consulting kind of expanded from that. The coaching came more later on because I'd launched a consultancy to work with arts-based businesses because that's always been one of my key passions working within the arts particularly small um and black organizations i worked with a lot of those um helping them get funding looking at you know their business structure and then we decided to leave london and i was pregnant at this point when i moved out here i knew nobody um, I live out in a place called Harlow in Essex and I knew nobody and I kind of was in this sort of point of getting this sort of consultancy going and I thought I can't keep commuting back and forth into London. And my husband's like, Go and meet some women, go out there and, and what I found was a lot of women who had businesses that nobody knew about, who wanted to start businesses and had no support because the infrastructure completely collapsed around um funding and um access. So I said, Well, why don't I just switch what I do? and support these women and that's how I started getting into to doing that and it was more consulting to begin with Mm -hmm. I already done some coaching and mentoring I'd done them in-house while I was working and I thought actually no, these women seem to need a bit more coaching so I brought that element in and the transformational piece I brought in last year so I've always been passionate about my self-development my own inner work as well as the outer work and I was bringing some of those elements into my clients and seeing that it did make a difference. I said, Do you know what? Go and invest your time and your money in getting trained properly. So I became an NLP practitioner and I'm also um, a performance coach. Amazing. So I did both of those things because I knew the difference it made in me and in terms of how I transformed my own health journey because I developed a condition called fibromyalgia and I was chronically ill for six years. And using those techniques helped me turn that around. So I'm pain free I don't have any of the issues that I had before, completely different. and and I know the benefits of you know the stuff that I teach and do because that's that has transformed my own life
0: that is amazing and yeah really inspirational to hear all of your your journeys a theme that sort of came out from everybody I think is this idea of being sort of adaptable um you know Andrew, you talked about doing a law degree and then ending up in financial services and having quite a few different experiences so they moved from Nigeria to the UK to America you know Renee you talked about about the perseverance of doing a, a degree where actually you were being sort of demotivated by the people who were coming in to talk to you and adapting and you know setting up out the box to be able to really talk about the things you were passionate about and then Yvette you've had a career path that sort of really varied and done lots of different roles what in these kind of uncertain times where people are probably having to adapt quite quickly and think about uh, what their future of work might look like for them what would you say are some transferable skills or just attitudes or attributes that somebody should have or develop any advice around transferable skills uh, qualities to help that transitions and changes a bit smoother Um,
2: I'll say developing that resilience most definitely I always say if you don't bend you break so understanding that and re- really kind of developing that and finding ways to maintain that resilience and having that curiosity, ask questions, yeah. be interested, be, you know, be, be curious about things and life and people and you'll learn a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Angela, Renee? Go on, Angela. Um, I'll say keep learning, like Yvette said, to stay curious, definitely keep learning, stay informed that way you stay relevant and you can get your information from different sources it doesn't need to be one place you know it's talking to people it's doing your own research about what interests you and just keeping on top of your existing skills like some things need to be updated frequently mm-hmm. you know if you have certifications and things like that and um, but I would say keep learning is on top of it
3: great Emily? I won't even say keep passion and motivation because those things go up and down and up and down but I will definitely say like keep trying to keep the craft sharp keep speaking to people about what it is that you're trying to do and where you're wanting to go because I I always say like speaking about things out loud and telling the right people is very powerful Mm -hmm. because eventually it lands you where you where you need to be and with who you need to be yes. so I think when times are uncertain when you're not sure what's next or what you're going to do yeah. keep speaking it out kind of put it out there into that you know how you say like put it out there into the atmosphere it's important because you might come across somebody that you're just having a general chat with and they'll be like actually I know someone that can help you or I can or someone that can put you in the direction of someone that will and that's and I'm a testament to that so many different times so I think yeah just keep giving that thing that you want life keep speaking life into it keep it alive, keep the dream alive, whatever way you can. You're going to have moments where you just don't want to and that's fine but just remember that you know, you're know you on a path, you're on a journey and that there's someone that can come and help you along the way.
0: Yeah that's so good. The other thing I wanted to pick up on, uh, I think Renee you talked about knowing that you are a writer at your core. I think that all uh, you know all three of you and myself included are people who are keenly aware of our um, I suppose our gifts and our purpose and trying to utilize those so I wanted to ask Angela and Yvette um who would you say you are at your core or what would you say is your is your gift and how do you use that either through work or the platforms that you run yeah Yvette or Angela
2: um I would say the word I would use for myself is catalyst that is the word I use so in my core, there's lots of different attributes and skills. So writing is there. Teaching is, is key to everything I do and sharing knowledge. I think that's so important. But it's a catalyst. It's somebody who sparks change, you know, who helps people see the change they can make in themselves and in the world. Because I think that's really important. Yeah. And I also know that there's things that are amazing, but I don't have to lead everything. It's about, you know, that conversation that can lead to, you know, something revolutionary. It doesn't have to be me. Yeah, that's nice.
0: Angela, who are you at your core? What is your gift and how do you use it in the world?
1: Um, At my core, I would say um, (laughs) stress-averse. Anything that causes me stress, I don't like it. Mm. And that kind of influences where self-fully comes in because it's just seeing a lot of stressed people around me and knowing I never want to be in that situation and then trying to equip people to be able to plan their life in such a way that they're not having that much stress in their day-to-day life yeah so it's more of a passion project i don't know if that's quite my calling in life but i guess we'll see because this is still in baby stages so it's too soon to tell
0: Wow, it's watched this space for all of us, right? You know, yes. there's still so much life. Um, So let's get into this self-care, you know, the boundaries conversation. So Yvette, you've already talked about experiencing burnout in your personal life, and that's what led you to wanting to help women to avoid the same thing. So can you give us a tip or any advice um, in relation to self-care and what you do around maintaining kind of a stress-free, balanced life? I mean... I think
2: just to, just briefly explaining about self-care I think when I talk about it it's not just the bubble baths and the, you know the the chill that glass of wine in the evening it's about the habits and practices you do on a daily basis to maintain yourself mind body and soul so it's quite it's quite deep and it's on every single level and it's from exercising from you know nutrition what you do when it comes to managing your emotional states connection to something bigger than you those are all the things when I talk about self-care self-care so it's thinking of what makes you feel good on a daily basis how can you do more of it and if something's not making you feel good well what is it what's going on what is it about that that person that you come across that always makes you you know get annoyed or or um you start you know you walk into that room and think oh right why am I doing here again if you're feeling those things it's like well, you need to do something about that because it's not helping your well-being in terms of boundaries my advice to everyone is channel your inner toddler learn to say no Repeatedly, I
0: like that. Yeah, the practicing saying no is is one that definitely it takes time and the guilt and getting over all of those things. But yeah, I think it's so necessary in terms of healthy boundaries. Mm. Renee, what would be any sort of practical tips around self care, uh, maintaining boundaries, and uh, sort of keeping your space uh, stress free? Um,
3: I think practically for me, I've always been a a journalist so a journal. Journal anything that's gone on in my head. I try and journal. I've kept a journal since I was like 12 years old, um, up until now. But I'd say, of recent, as the, the years have gotten really busy for me, I still journal, but I try now and leave voice notes. I create voice notes on my phone and I just spew out whatever's on my mind last thing in the day and I just get it out. I'll pray about it at the same time. I pray, I, I make sure I pray a lot, and that's just me talking to God, getting it all out. Um, getting direction, um, eating well, taking care of my health. So, you know, I had a few ups and downs with my health. Um, and a lot of it was linked to having an intolerance to certain foods, which I've dropped out, but then it was also linked to like stress. Mm-hmm. So when I when I used to get really stressed, I used to get severe stomach pains and stomach issues. Yeah. And I feel like once I pinpointed that as something, I've really tried my hardest to kind of keep those levels down and keep my mind in check. So even just simple things like saying to my friends and when they ask me if I'm okay there's certain people that you know you can just only keep it generic with but the people that you know you can be transparent with instead of saying yeah I'm okay I'll be like you know what do you have capacity because I'm actually not okay <laughs> and I think it's it's good for me to, to be honest in that so I'd say talking it out helps I'd definitely say working out as well but I think definitely at the core of it mine has always been peace of mind, pursuing peace of mind, because if your mind is not at peace, everything else is going to be a mess.
0: Great. So Angela, what would you say are some of your self-care tips or advice or ways of sort of managing stress that you maybe use as well?
1: Right. So for me, priority is certain boundaries and certain expectations. Um, people will only treat you the way you treat yourself and how you permit them to treat you. So I Mm. think our biggest stresses tend to be external for the most part because in this day and age, everyone's quick on their fingers, everyone's sending things, sharing things. Um, So set expectations. And with work, I would say start the way you intend to go on. Don't start work where you come in at, you know, 7.30 and you're there till 6.00, even though you're not actually busy, you're not producing anything just because you want to look like a good employee. If your contract hours are 95, work those hours. Of course, there's exceptions to busier periods, but they should know that that's the exception, not the rule for you. If you don't set expectations to be too high in regards to what the employer is expecting from you, then they can work within those frameworks that you've set up. My second tip will be um, prioritizing rest. I know that's easy to say. I'm not a mom yet. So for moms, I don't actually know how that will translate. But, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're working for a sidekick, whatever it is that your life really looks like, it's making time for rest. You know, in relationships, we say you make time for people that you want to make time for. Do the same. Prioritize yourself. Make time for yourself. If it's waking up early and meditating, doing yoga, whatever it is that works for you, prioritize that. If it's not having any calls after a certain time, let everyone know, don't call me after 10pm, I'm going to read and go to bed. Mm. So prioritize resting and doing things that you enjoy just so you can you know, reconnect with yourself, mm. renew your energy, just rebalance and just be centered again. Mm-hmm. Are
0: there any? Uh, are they both things that you do yourself, or, or are there any in particular that work for for you in terms of really resetting yourself and re-energizing
1: yourself? Yeah. So personally, I love reading. Like reading is my first love. <laughs> so like my reading time is my reconnecting time. If I go for a long period of time without reading, I actually feel. And then when I do pick up a book, I can read the whole thing in one sitting. So I have to kind of, you know, always find time to kind of read because, you know, your breathing is even. You're not thinking about anything. You're just lost in that world of the book that you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so reading is my go-to thing. I'm currently working on doing yoga. Ooh. How, how long have you been practicing? Not quite three months. So I've used this um, lockdown period to, um, I started the 30-day challenge on YouTube. Nice. Which I completed. And then I'm on the second... Um, challenge which isn't going as well because for some reason I'm not sticking to the daily practices. We don't realize the way that we're not breathing properly or deeply, and we're not getting oxygen to some parts of our bodies. So I think you guys quite helpful as well.
0: Amazing. So, can you give our listeners a book recommendation, seeing as you're an avid reader?
1: Oh, since we're talking about stress for nonfiction, I recommend the stress solution. Is by a Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. He's a a medical doctor. I think he used to be a GP or he still is a GP. And um, he talks about the ways to reset your body, your mind, your relationships and your purpose. And I find it to be very in there. And he has a lot of practical tips to help you, um, you know, reset these areas of your life.
0: Sounds really good. I think my kind of self-care tip, which you know, or, or yeah, the the best way I know to to look after myself, to preserve my peace and to keep my stress low, has taken me a very long time to to understand. So I Um, am one of those strange creatures who when I'm out socially appears to be extremely extroverted and usually can connect with uh, you know people in the room and seem quite comfortable doing that however uh, you know it was very difficult for me as a young person understanding that when I was in social settings I was really I was really extroverted and really enjoyed it but felt that I also really heavily needed to have lots of alone time and this was something that I felt as when I was younger my friends didn't understand. They thought that they kind of, I would be accessible and available and ready to almost give the show every time. And I think I find myself feeling very guilty for not wanting to be out and for not wanting to be social. So for me, what I've understood is that when I'm in any social circumstance, whether it's a business event, work or with my friends, I'm exerting a lot of energy and I feel that really deplete me. So actually I'm the kind of person who needs equal amounts of Social and kind of uh, alone time as well, and, and understanding that for me has has allowed me to create a sense of routine where I know if I've had a particularly busy week because of work or because of success looks like you or because I'm meeting friends, then I that's the weekend where I need the Saturday and Sunday to stay in all Saturday and Sunday without speaking to anybody. So for me, that understanding of myself and what renews my energy and what tops me up has been really helpful in terms of self-care and preserving my 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 peace of mind. So let's do the the toughest transition. So what has been the most difficult jump for you and how did you overcome it? Mm,
3: I think there were two for me. I think one was when I left Birmingham to come here. So it's not even like it wasn't an exciting. It was one of the most exciting times. But then I think the first year of settling was the hardest thing ever. Like I almost left simply because the living situation and the social situation was really hard. But me, I'm so deter. I'm just so stubborn as well. I was just like, I'm not giving up on anything. I was like, you're gonna have to kill me first. I'm gonna. I didn't come here for any reason. For no reason (laughs) at all. So. I think that just kept me going. And then uh, I'd say when I left a full-time journalism career of of seven years, and then I went it alone fully for a year. And oh my gosh, that was so hard. It was like, it was so liberating. But then I really thought, wow, it is really all on me now. To keep the roof over my head, pay my bills um to stay to stay creative and then you know there was bouts of depression and then doubting in myself yeah you know am I am I even a writer anymore what am I doing but I think it landed me into branching out and doing more things with OTB so I think out of those those really hard times amazing things have come eventually even though I didn't feel like they were would at the time so
0: yeah yeah can I ask so making the jump from your full-time journalism career what has that sort of period looked like were you freelancing were you bringing um you know sort of bringing in money throughout the box like how what did that actually look like for you um so
3: I was doing a bit of everything you know so I was I was still writing so I was still doing my journalism so I was still getting money that way freelance I worked with children a little bit as well. I also was making money through OTV events because we were doing stuff like every month. Also, I was doing copywriting as well for small brands. So there was all these different things I was trying to do <laughs> every month to just make sure that I was okay. And mm. um, thankfully, I did have a bit uh, in the beginning. I did. I was quite. I was okay for the first half because I had some money put away. But even then, it was just like, do you know what? Like this isn't enough. So I think what I what I did eventually was um I was approached by a foundation who were following out the box yeah. and they saw what we were doing about the box and wanted to talk to us about our youth network and then through that we started talking more and then they were like actually we have this role going here it's a brand new role it's not being done before and we're looking for someone and I was like actually this is something I can do because it's flexible I can I can be part-time with it um it's for a cause that I'm causes that I care about it's using my comm skills so
0: I went for that and then I ended up doing that part time. Yeah. And the other thing that you mentioned is experiencing sort of bouts of depression and we know that challenges around mental health are really big in our communities. Um how did you deal with that? Yeah, how, how did you sort of overcome those uh, those challenges? I think what really helped me was my networks of friends. I've good I have
3: some good solid people around me and also because you know what I was doing we were doing um, workshops every month OTB workshops and I think just seeing the worth and value that they were providing each month to people and the skills that they were giving to young people in
0: creative industries I think for me looking back that kept me going. Yeah amazing thank you Renee and so Yvette what has been uh, one of the kind of more difficult transition points in your life and and how did you overcome it?
2: I think um, it was leaving London and becoming a parent, which I did in the space of few months, <laughs> leaving everything I, I knew and everyone I knew um, to a place where the buses stopped at seven o'clock. and I didn't understand <laughs> what, what this place was. And it was not very diverse as well, moving here. So I kind of, having grown up in London, it's kind of Big city, used to it. That's my vibe, my energy, you know. And it was it was a shock to the system. And then I had a little person to look after. There's some people that thrive in that kind of motherhood bubble. I'm I'm the kind of mother that works better when she's working. I've gone out to work and done that things and had me time, and then I can come back and and do mother stuff. So yeah. So I found that that was a that was a huge transition. And I think getting ill and having to kind of come to terms with being ill and what that meant. And then now being on the other side of it um, and not realising how ill I was (laughs) because I just carry on. Why don't you? That's what you do. And, you know, getting to the point of, you know, complete, complete collapse. And then realising actually you can't keep doing that anymore. You've got to find a different way.
0: Mm. And and before the uh, before the long period of sickness, were there any points at which with hindsight, you could have spotted it and and stopped and I'm thinking about I I you know I call myself a a workaholic and I definitely run myself you know to burnout past burnout just like you um for other young men and young women who work similarly to us how do you spot the telltale signs of of burnout and and what do you what do you do
2: well, when you I mean, before you get to burnout, you'll experience stress. So you'll have maybe some niggling pains, some aches and bits and pieces that you'll kind of ignore. With stress, you'll feel your adrenaline going, You're, you know, your kind of nervous energy. It's there. Um, You'll feel irritable, annoyed. That's the stress bit. And a little bit of stress is good. There's no problem with stress. We all need a bit of it to get us for our day. But we're creating much more of our stress. When you go into chronic stress, that's where you feel like that all the time. Your body is not switching off. You have those, you know, you're not sleeping so well. Your, you know, your decision making processes aren't that great, but you're still functioning. Burnout is the opposite of all of that. There's nothing. There's no, there's no passion. There's no desire. There's no energy. So you go to that side. So that's completely, that's kind of, you know, try and lift your head and get out of bed. So various points, your body's going to be telling you. And I've learned to um, listen when it whispers so it doesn't have to shout. Yes. And I was shouting very, very loudly and I ignored it. So it, you know, knocked me out. So I said, right, you're going to be in bed and you're not going to, to move. You're not going to, be able to walk. Um, I had to learn to read again in and out of the hospital. And at the same time, I was still running a business, juggling a PhD, juggling a toddler. Oh, I got gosh. my MBE during that time. So I
0: still was doing all of that. Wow. And and do you think then you're just the type of person who just has a capacity to to handle quite a lot of a lot of things?
2: Um, No, I think I'm foolish (laughs) to do that. And I would never recommend anyone to do that now. Um, You can have that success. You can still achieve, but you can do it differently. My methods and habits were not healthy. You know, as I mentioned before, I'd work 12 hour days. So if you've got that kind of work behavior pattern. Now you work for yourself. As Rene talks about, working for yourself is different. There's no one there breathing down your neck normally. Yes, you might have deadlines, but it's different. You have to self-motivate. You have to look after your own timetable. And in the same way, you have to care for yourself. There's no boss that's got to say, take a break. You have to do that for, for yourself, too. Yes.
0: Angela, what has been the hardest transition point for you um, up to this point in your life? And how did you overcome it?
1: um it will be what I mentioned earlier so there was a time when I was out of work for one year Mm -hmm. it was really the most challenging time of my life so far um you know it's facing unemployment it's facing rejection you know you think okay you finished junior you've got some work experience you've got some good brands on your CV so it shouldn't take too long it shouldn't be too hard Mm. and then month on month on month you're still in that position and in that moment really um of course, I struggled during that time, but at the end of it, when I did find a job, and like looking back, it was more like you know, like there's a time for everything, you know, and it just wasn't my time, and those jobs weren't what God wanted for me. I mentioned that I started a new job last week. If I had then, an, and it's like pretty much a dream job, dream brand for me to work with, and if I didn't have that one year, and if I worked for a different institution when I got a job coming off that one year period. I don't think that I'll be where I am now. So everything works together for our good. And I truly believe that. Mm.
0: And um, in terms of um, surviving a year without work, um, you know, financially, emotionally, practically, how did you get yourself through that season?
1: Um, So gratefully, at the time, I lived at home with my parents. So I wasn't paying rent. And um, so that was the biggest help that I had. With my day-to-day outgoings, I did have a part-time job at the time. It was only working Saturdays for an estate agent, but it meant a bit of income coming in and honestly helped. Friends helped out as well. My fiancé at the time, he would send me money yeah, as well every once in a while. So I guess a good support network of family and friends as well as a part-time job that I had.
0: Brilliant. And how was it emotionally? Um, was that...
1: A difficult time. Oh, I felt useless. I felt entirely useless. I felt like my confidence was rock bottom because yeah. it just made me doubt myself, made me doubt my choices that I made in life after that moment. Like, where did I go wrong? I couldn't really see beyond the funk of that um, moment. So it, I really struggled, and the only thing I know what to do when I have no control is to pray. So I prayed a lot out of confusion, not for anything else. So I think having that spiritual connection helped me get through it. As well as a social network of friends and family. Oh, thank you
0: for sharing that transition point. And I think that there'll be lots of people who will be finding that uh, looking for work at the moment a struggle, and the market just being, depending on you know what field they're in, really difficult. So, what would like, what words would you give to somebody who's in that same position?
1: Knowing now, but I didn't know it then. You know, everyone's at home. Use this time to brush up on your skills. It's easy for me to say now because I didn't do it when I was in that position. But at the same time, the same level of resources weren't available. So I would say go online, keep yourself busy. It could even be doing a yoga challenge, just something to feel productive during the day. You know, rediscover the things that you love, those things that you didn't have time for before. You know, if you have a marketable skill outside of your day-to-day work that you would normally do, maybe find a way to market that because this would be a really good time to reach out to your network and sell your skills outside of your day-to-day profession
0: yeah that's really that's really good um so uh, i want us to quickly just touch on on one more thing um renee you've talked about relationships both in terms of uh helping you get out of difficult times uh but also um you talked about the importance of of networks i think yvette you alluded to the importance of mentors so so I wanted to um, quickly give you guys an opportunity to share who has helped you and who has been part of your network or role models or mentors and how do you go about developing a, a strong network of people around you, Brene? Like I was saying earlier, I think
3: always kind of be ready to talk about what you do and what, you, what it is that you want to do and what you want to achieve. Um, because A, you never know who you're sitting next to and B, you never know, they know (laughs) and I'll never forget and it it was it was crazy it's when I just left university and again I was going through another bout of depression very bad it was bad and I remember um speaking to this lady that I know barely get my words out at the time and she was just like you know you know I could see like you're just so upset but you know there's so much ahead of you like I'm so excited for you She was like what is it that you you're wanting to do I know you've just left uni and I was like media journalism etc etc and she was like okay, well, I know somebody um, who works in the the sphere. Um, And this was back in Birmingham. And she was like, I'm sure that he'd be able to help you or at least point you in the right direction. I said, okay, cool. She gave me his email address and I followed up and I emailed him and we met up for a coffee and I just spoke to him about where I was at, what I do, I listened to what he did. I took interest as well in who he was and what he did and what he was about um And he was like, "Do you know what? I'm gonna mentor you." And he was like, "What sorts of things are you looking for? What sorts of things do you want to do?" And I told him, and he was like, "Would you move?" And I said, "No, <laughs> I never wanted to come to London. You know, I did not want to come here for what for? For me, <laughs> I was always like like, 'Why do I need to go to London for? Mm. What for?'" But um, <laughs> it's funny because I said no, but then he he sent me like roles in and around West Midlands. Nothing was coming through, and then the the journalism role that he sent me was in London, the first one. And I thought, oh,
0: yeah. God.
3: But something about that role was like, this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. That's all I kept hearing. And I said, oh, my gosh. So long story short, I ended up being there and coming here. And he was very pivotal. It was very pivotal. And it was such a short amount of time. So I always say, like, sometimes a mentor doesn't necessarily have to be for for life. That could be just be for, for a season or a period sometimes it's just about they need to just do what they need to do yeah and that's that I think mentors in different capacities in at different seasons of your life are definitely important
0: yeah Angela have there been people who have helped you along your journey particularly your career journey and your professional journey
1: um yes and no so from a professional point of view like in my everyday work I don't have a mentor because on one hand, what I do is, I wouldn't say niche, but it's quite niche in that I don't actually know anyone else who works in the product that I work in. Um, so it's difficult to then talk to someone about how I can proceed. So what I tend to focus on is sponsors, people who will speak up for me in dreams that I'm not in, people who are advocating for me, whether it comes to like promotion, whether it comes to you know, compensation. So I professionally I prioritize sponsors of mentors. From a um from self release, so from my passion project, so to speak, yeah. my mentors and people that I know in everyday life, they're people who are available like this. The doctor whose book I um, recommended earlier, I don't know him personally. I actually found him on the BBC and I kind of wrote him on Instagram. And then I saw he had this book, and then I read his book, and I'm like, this guy is capturing everything that I believe in. But from a scientific and medical point of view, because we did not see stress as something that actually affects our DNA but it does. There's so many issues that come from it. Um, so, you know, he's someone that I think mentors me, even though he doesn't know who I am. And I also follow Ariana Huffington. She's the founder of Huffington Post, as well as Thrive Global. Again, she's not someone that I know personally. And that's why I think mentoring doesn't have to be one-on-one. It doesn't have to be a personal relationship. When you're doing what you're doing, there's people who are being inspired. You know, you're mentoring someone and you don't even know. And there's people who you're looking up to. They don't know that you're looking up to them, but you are and you're learning from them. So I think it's important to clarify that mentoring doesn't have to be, you know, going up to someone physically and saying, oh, can you mentor me? Learn from people around us. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Yvette, uh mentors, networks, role models, have they been important in your journey and, and how have you found them? Oh,
2: definitely. Yes. Um, I was really blessed to have mentors from the get go. So as I said I was writing when I was 16. I wrote for a magazine called Art Rage, which was like a black timeout. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. And I met a couple of people there who helped me throughout my early career. And I still am in touch with one of them to this day. So highly important. And I seek out people <laughs> as well. If there's something I'm interested in, I will I will track down somebody and find them and talk to them. I have a I have an amazing network around me. So if there's one thing I you know said about younger selves, it's understand networking. It's just good to kind of connect and find out, and from that, doors open. And like Renee said, when you start talking about the things that you're interested in, it's amazing how suddenly it's like actually, I need to put you in touch with this person, or you should speak to seven. And that, that's not going to happen if it's in your head and you're not having those conversations. So definitely networking has been really crucial and important. Um, it's how I get a lot of clients and um, having those mentors and coaches as well. I have coaches. I believe in my own personal development. I don't see why, you know, I'm a coach myself. So therefore I have to keep continuing that. I don't think if you meet a coach that doesn't do that, I'll be concerned. I don't expect to know everything. I don't want to actually as well. And I don't want to do everything. That's why I find the cleverest people who can help me and advise me.
0: Yes. So true. So, success looks like you for anybody who's listening. Uh, run a six month uh, mentorship program. So, ultimately, we're connecting you with people who are doing the careers that you're interested in, running the businesses you see yourself running, or studying at the educational institutions that you want to go to. Our program uh, connects you with somebody who is suited to your mentoring goals. It lasts six months and it's one to one. It's a combination of in person, one once the lockdown is lifted, and online sessions. And we secure you some work experience and some shadowing experience as well through that mentoring. So uh, you can check it out on our website. Okay, so let's uh, wrap up today's session. I always uh, ask this question on almost every episode. So I think that people are really uh, interested in what you can make in different careers and that sometimes we're not always transparent. So I wanted to understand if anybody wanted to kind of pursue a similar kind of career or business journey to you so if we wanted a role in journalism or comms what could they look to earn so maybe I could ask you Renee so if you were starting out in sort of journalism um potentially what could somebody be looking to earn and then sort of in the middle of their career as well
3: 21 I was on 21,000 my first started this was 2000 This is 10 years ago yeah that was my starting salary it's different now when I started it was way lower but i'd say starting Mm -hmm. now is probably anywhere from 25 up and then i'd say up into mid-level i'd say 40 plus thousand
0: and then if you were earning what the guy at the bbc was earning when he came in to to talk to you at your university do you know what what the kind of top end of your the journalism career can earn oh about seventy. that's top top though Perfect, thank you. And then Yvette, what would somebody looking to run their own sort of coaching business uh, be looking to sort of maybe earn or, or charge clients? What does money look like in in your sphere of of the business?
2: It's very variable, so you can get people who are life coaches who have you know charged between fourteen and seventy pounds an hour, and associates would earn that so if you were to work for an organization, you'd earn between that. Whereas you've also got people like Tony Robbins who are multimillionaires. (laughs) So it does depend on how you build your business and um, the kind of traction that you get. It's still technically an unregulated industry, but um, a kind of average sort of figure for transformational coaching is that you'll charge around what a local solicitor would charge. So if you looked around your local area, your local solicitor might charge. About between 125 to maybe 200 an hour, so that's kind of a that kind of figure is a bit more average. But most, you know, people have packages anywhere from four grand a year to 100k a year.
0: Okay, brilliant. And and what was your salary in your first job ever? So I remember
2: this when I left the press office, I was earning 14,440 pounds. I always remember that number. And that was in 1999.
0: Wicked. Angela, while I'm working in the financial services in a role like yours, what would the entry point look like? And what would sort of mid level look like? And then if you were sort of at the top of your career, um, what could you potentially earn?
1: Um, So, you remember I was saying like after my one year, Um, since I've been unemployed the first job that I got is what led me to where I am now so when I started that job I was on 40 Um, so even though it wasn't necessarily an entry-level job it was for me because I didn't have any experience in that product at the time Um, so of course my previous work experience contributed to the benchmarking when it came to compensation I will say middle management. I think the bracket is between 60 and 80. But again, that, so someone in my same role in a different product, their benchmarking will be a lot different. So it depends on really where you're at on what products you're um, aligned with
0: yeah and then if at the top end of your of your role working on your current
1: product what what might somebody look to to earn definitely over the hundreds um because we're talking executive director level here but um also bear in mind that the number you know on your contract as per your compensation um there's other things that you need to consider as your bonuses that's not usually documented so you need to think about your bonuses, you need to think about other benefits are available to you. You need to think about equity being, you know, like stock rewards. Um, so these are things that won't be like a number you're looking at when you're looking at your base compensation, but they're things that will um, you know, impact your take home at the end of the day.
0: Thank you so much for your transparency. I think that is something that young people don't get to hear much about. I think that people are a little bit mistrusting. We're sharing that information. So that's really useful. Um, So so just to end this um, episode of the podcast, uh, I wanted you guys to end with your most valuable lesson that has got you this far? Uh, You might have already shared it. So feel free to repeat any part of the wisdom you've shared in this episode. So what's been the most valuable lesson that's got you this far?
1: Yeah, um, I would say trust the process. You know, I believe that every one of us is walking in like a purpose. And we never really know what the end product is going to be. So just believe that the universe is aligned to making your greatest self manifest.
2: Mm yeah it's developed that resilience as i said that whole bit about being able to be flexible and bending so you don't break
3: i think feel the fear and do it anyway that's always my thing
0: Mm, that's good amazing thank you so much ladies that brings us to the end of episode seven of the slice speaks careers podcast you've brought so much value and wisdom uh, so thank you once again